0: Good Morning Liberty. Well, hello there, everybody. This is the Good Morning Liberty podcast. My name is Nate, and my co-host, Charlie, is still gone today. Thank you guys so much for listening while he's gone. I really appreciate it. It is really not as easy to do this by myself. It's always really, it's a lot easier to have someone to bounce ideas off of. And, you know, the two of us, Charlie and I have been friends for I don't know, since we were in grade school. So, we definitely can talk and interact with each other really easily. So, if this is your first time listening, just know that normally there are two of us. And right now, there is only one. But hey give me a shot. Just give me a shot here. So if it is your first time listening, go ahead and subscribe to the podcast. We have a lot of people, a lot of new people coming in every single day. If you guys will hit subscribe, that's going to help us so much. We'll send our episode directly to your phone next time we release one, save you a bunch of time, and it will help us out tremendously. So I'm a little bit late getting started today because I've been watching this. Um, so right now, the house. Uh, the Services the Financial Committee, whatever that committee's called, they're just grilling Mark Zuckerberg from Facebook right now. And it's been really interesting to watch. And Charlie sent me a text and he said, you got to be kidding me, Maxine Waters is the chair of the the House and Financial Services Committee? Uh, this is insane. And the really funny part about this is I remember playing a clip a little while back from Maxine Waters. Uh, and she was uh, she was asking the CEO of one of the major banks why they charge so much for student loans, for interest on student loans. And he had to let her know that actually the government took full control of student loans in 2010 and that they didn't service student loans. This is the chair of the Financial Services Committee. So the, it's really funny to watch these people grill Mark Zuckerberg over his uh, you know they're introducing that Libra, he, which is a currency. They're saying it's not a currency, but a payment system, basically on Facebook. And of course, they want to stop that because the government doesn't like competition. Because most of the time, they will lose. So we'll talk a little bit more about Facebook here in a little bit. I'm going to go over some ways later in the later in the podcast that you can manipulate statistics. Statistics are very very easy to manipulate to make them say whatever you want to say with them and i want to go over some ways that people do this so maybe you can pinpoint this when you hear someone throwing out a statistic at you and you can say well hey why did you why did you pick that date why did you pick that date range to pull from why did you pick that certain Time period. Yeah, there's all kinds of different ways that you can manipulate a statistic to get it to say whatever you want. So I'm going to go over some of these, some of the common forms of this, and some ways that you can spot that here a little bit later. But first, let's go over some news. Okay, so this is coming out of Wisconsin. It says paid medical family leave would be offered under new Democrat proposal. See so yeah, how the Democrats in Wisconsin they introduced a bill which would give paid family leave uh, twelve weeks. I believe, to anyone, you know, if you're leaving for uh, maybe you're having a baby, maybe your wife had a baby, maybe someone died, maybe had someone with an illness, something like that, you can leave. And uh, still get paid from your job and not lose your job. So it says, Wisconsin employees would be eligible for paid time off under a new proposal at the Wisconsin State Capitol. The Democratic bill would provide participating employees in Wisconsin up to 12 weeks of paid leave to care for a new child, to treat a personal illness, or to care for an aging or sick family member. Now, that sounds great. That's great. Uh, we should all strive towards this. I think all businesses should strive towards being able to offer that. So I don't want to get on here and act like that's a bad thing automatically on its head. I think it's great to be able to get a job where you can get paid leave and not worry about losing your job and still be able to make money while you're gone. Now, the really, the funny part about this is you can read the headline and it can say paid medical family leave would be offered but then when you read through the actual bill, the even the article on the bill, it says later down the line here, the bill's author, the bill's author said the program would not cost the employers any money and instead would be paid for completely by the employees themselves. Employees would contribute a certain percentage of their paycheck into a trust fund. Okay. So basically this is a big bill in the Congress in Wisconsin to tell you that you should start your own savings account, just in case something happens. And this is what we need people to be spending their time on, right? So, the idea here is that this is going to work as some kind of an unemployment insurance. So, it's not as though you're putting money, you know, I said, into a savings account. What this is going to be like is you would be able to draw out more money than you've actually put in, People would be able to draw from it, and some people wouldn't. And it's just—it's going to be like—it's going to be like unemployment if you think about it like that. So that's the kind of system that they're setting up. The problem with this is that it is—it's voluntary. I'm not saying that's a problem. It's a problem for the specific plan itself. The problem there is that a lot of people aren't going to pay into it, and that's—that's going to hurt the actual program itself. Actually, what you're going to see is that only people who are at the highest risk for using it are going to be the ones that are going to pay into it. People who don't think that they're at a high risk or maybe you're just a single guy with a job, well, you're probably not going to need paternity leave and and maybe you're not worried about any of your family members being sick right now. Well, you're not going to pay into the system. Maybe if you're worried about needing money at a time when you need to leave your job, you're just going to start your own savings account. That way you can actually pull back your money. And you're not at risk for paying into something and then never using it, which is something that happens a lot. So the problem is this only works if about 10% of the participants use it. After that, it would be in the negative. Actually, if, if only 15% of the participants are going to use it every single year, then it would be running in the negative every single year. The, this, this type of plan, this type of policy... It only incentivizes people who are likely to use it, to actually use it. If you're unlikely, then, like I said, you're just going to be putting your own money in your own bank account. That way you could still get it back. It's, it's literally the same thing as, as crafting an insurance plan for people that know for sure they're going to need insurance. And that's going to get a lot more expensive. But something like this, is, it's only going to work if they're going to force everyone to pay into it, which they're not doing. Which is a good thing. I obviously don't want them to force people to pay into it. But something like this is only going to work if every single person is paying into it. Because what you end up seeing is that a really high percentage of the people that are paying into it are people that know that they're going to need to use it. They knew this when they made Obamacare, by the way. That's why they put that individual mandate in there. That's the only thing that even made the math close to working out, was the individual mandate. Because they needed healthy people paying into the system that were never going to use it to cover all of the people that they knew were going to use it. In the the absence of the individual mandate, what you end up having are only people who know that they're probably going to use it, paying into it, and then the healthy people are just not going to pay into it. And then the whole thing's upside down. So it's just not something that's going to work. It's going to end up running in the negative. They'll end up having to take money from other things. And then you always want to be wary of when they say they're going to start a trust fund. You know, that's Some obvious things there are, uh, well, are you sure they're never going to use the money for anything else? They'll probably do something like what other states do, which is when they project how much money they're going to take in from this trust fund, they're going to start borrowing money on that trust fund. And then hopefully that never runs in the negative. They'll start borrowing money on that all the time to pay for their pensions, to pay for other debts that they have. It's what the only reason I know that they'll do that is because I'm originally from the state of Illinois, and that's what they do all the time. When they decided they were going to legalize the gambling and really the video gaming, you guys see those things in gas stations and all over the place? When they decided they were going to do that, they went ahead and borrowed money on the projected income from doing that. And the problem was their projections were way off. And so they borrowed more money than what they ever actually started to have coming in from that. And now they just have another program, something like gambling or video gaming, that could have been profitable if they weren't borrowing money on it. now they just have another program that's running in the hole and sending them further down the line of, financial ruin. So, the people in Wisconsin need to be a little apprehensive about this. And then we get into the discussion about paid leave. That's a really tricky discussion, because like I said when I first started talking about this, I want people to have paid leave. I want everyone to have a job where they get paid leave. I don't think I don't think that it's a good thing for people to get fired because they had a baby or they had a sick relative. I want every business to get to the point where they can afford to provide this to everyone. But simply passing a law that says that you have to do this, it does not mean that every single business can afford to do that. It makes it very risky, especially for businesses that have a small amount of employees maybe one person running each facet of the business. It makes it really tricky for small businesses or or some of these businesses that are just over the cusp of being, you know, maybe they've got 55 employees. Now they're not a small business anymore. It, It makes it really dangerous for that. And it can actually hurt a lot of businesses. And while you're trying to do the right thing, you're trying to do something that sounds really just and moral and virtuous you can end up hurting a lot of small businesses that are trying to come up. Uh, really, it's it's going to help people who can afford this at the expense of the people who can't. And that's that's kind of a big issue. So in, in this bill, they're saying that the business owner doesn't have to pay for it, right? It's going to be paid by the employees. So they're trying to say, well, this isn't going to hurt businesses because they don't have to pay for it. The employees are going to pay for it. But they still have to try and replace you for the three months that you're going to be gone. And that's a big issue. You know, What if you're a really important person in your workplace? What if you've made it to a, a high-level position where you're making a lot of decisions every single day? Is it really that easy to just replace you? I, mean, I know there's a lot of people who work in a position where you can easily be replaced. Someone else can just be put on the schedule for the time that you were going to be there. You know that's that's a different situation, but if you work in a position where you've trained for years to be in that position, it's not just it's not as easy as it sounds to replace those people. Now, my wife works in a position at HCA, which is a healthcare company, a Hospital Corporation of America. is what that is, they own about uh, close to two hundred hospitals, and she would not be very easily replaced. They'd have to train someone for months to take over for her if she had to leave. They couldn't just keep going with her gone because she she works directly with the CFO every single day, and every time the CFO needs to make a financial decision, he goes to her and says, hey, uh, does this decision make any sense? Is it going to cost us a bunch of money? Is it going to make us any money? Can we afford to make this decision? They have to go to her and ask that, and she's one of the only people in that position right now. So it's not really as easy as it sounds. It's not as cut and dry as it sounds. Business owners, managers, all these people, whether you want them to or not, or whether we say they will or not, they will take this into account when they're hiring people. And I'm not saying that that's fair or that that's a good thing. But for businesses that have people in really important positions, you have to take things like this into account. If I have to train this person for a year or two to get them up to the position that they're in where they can actually do this job every single day, well, what am I going to do if they can just leave for three months? What are you going to do? You have to train someone else to take over for them. That could take a couple of years if there's someone that's really important and really good at their job. So it's not all just as easy as it sounds. Now, I put down here, this is an extreme example. I wanted to take this all the way to like a furthest logical conclusion here. And just so you can understand the situation. Obviously, this is not the situation a lot of people are in, but just play this out with me, if you will. Just imagine that you're extremely important at your job, which a lot of you are, I'm sure. Well, let's say you have one person tasks with making sure that a nuclear reactor didn't overheat. I know that's extreme, but just imagine you're at a plant. You've got one person trained up on a specific task that is very important to making sure that this reactor doesn't overheat. That person trained for years before they were able to do this job by themselves, and their job was to make sure that nothing bad happened. It didn't get too hot, nothing, nothing overheated, it didn't melt down, nothing like that. That's their position. It's a very high pay position. They're keeping a lot of people safe you know and they're very obviously very very necessary in this position. So what if they miss work? Well, if they miss work if they're the only person doing this position, then it's it's game over at that point in time for everyone. Everyone inside there, all the people that they serve in the area, it's not good for them. So if you're in that position, if you're in the hiring position when you're hiring someone to do that job, do you think the possibility of a worker needing to take three months off later in the year is going to be at all a deciding factor when you're deciding who you're going to hire for this job? That's all I'm asking. Is it going to be one of the things that you have to take into account? What if you're like my wife and you're the only person who does decision support for the CFO of a major hospital in Nashville? And that person needs you to pull information anytime they make a big decision before they can make anything. Do you think that the CFO or the person that hired her would take into account whether or not the person they're hiring is going to have to leave for a few months later in the year? I think that they probably would. Now, I'm not saying, once again, I'm not saying that employers shouldn't find a way to offer paid leave to people. I'm not saying that you should never be able to leave if you get pregnant or you have a sick loved one or anything like that. But what I am saying is is that these things still have to be taken into account. It's not just as easy as saying, well, people should get this. Yeah, maybe people should, but is it always possible? That's the question. I make the same argument with the minimum wage. People should get paid more, they should. But the problem is you can't dictate what the value of every single person's labor is in the market. Some people work at a place that does tons of sales all day and has a good profit margin. Some people work somewhere that has a really low profit margin and maybe they're not as busy. Can you dictate that the laborers at that place, that they're both worth the same amount of money or at least the minimum amount of money? The problem is you can't dictate that. Sure, for most businesses, most big businesses, they can afford to do this, but you end up hurting all of the smaller ones who actually can't afford to do that. So all I'm saying is that there are things that have to be taken into account when you're talking about this. It's not as easy as it all sounds. Is this fair? No, it's not fair. But no one ever said that life was going to be fair. If you're in a position where you're providing a valuable service to someone, it doesn't mean that nothing bad's going to happen if you leave suddenly. You can't just say that that's the case. There are actual things that need to be taken into consideration. And maybe you're not that important at your job, and you can be easily replaced. Someone else can be put on the schedule and they do the same thing that you do. But that is not the case for every single job out there. That's all I'm saying. You can't put everything underneath this one umbrella and say that it's all true. Because it's not always true. That's the danger of these massive overhaul, these sweeping laws that say everyone can afford to give people paid leave it's not always the case so this is from Fox uh, this is an article on Hannity actually so 47 state attorney general attorneys general probing Facebook for antitrust violations 47 states now so this uh, New York State Attorney General Letitia James she says, our investigation now has the support of 47 attorneys general from around the nation who are all concerned that Facebook may have put consumer data at risk, reduced the quality of consumers' choices, and increased the price of advertising. As we continue our investigation, we will use every investigative tool at our disposal to determine whether Facebook's actions stifle competition and put users at risk. Yes, there is an actual antitrust violation probe into Facebook right now which inevitably leads to them being broken up and there are 47 states behind this right now what I want to know is in in what what I want to know is in what world is Facebook reducing consumers choices can you can you get anyone to answer that if you're going to ask someone how are they how is facebook reducing choices can you go back to 2003 when there was no facebook social media wasn't that prevalent and think about the different choices as a consumer that you had at that point in time what do you think that is compared to now do you think that facebook is doing something to decrease that number Are they a monopoly whatsoever? Are they stopping you from starting your own social media company? No, they're not. You could start your own social media company. It might fail because people will decide they like Facebook more. But that certainly doesn't mean that Facebook is stopping you from starting your own company and coming into that market. So they're not going to be able to be called a monopoly because there's multiple social media platforms. And then on the idea of them increasing the price for advertising, this is a completely insane idea. And anyone who has had a small business before Facebook, you know how ridiculous this is. Maybe for big businesses, it's hurt them because their competition can afford to run advertisements now, and now they're having to spend more money on Facebook ads. But for people who have small businesses, mid-level to lower-level businesses... Facebook has opened up an entire world that people just didn't used to have. I know this because uh, at one point in time, I was running advertisements for my band before Facebook, and we were having to look at magazine advertisements. And you'd have to look at spending 500 to to $1,000 to put your picture in a magazine and hope that the right people read that page and hope that they then took time to go look up your MySpace profile, or to go on some kind of a website and and buy your CD, something like that, and you just have to hope see if that works. And that magazine might only have you know twenty thousand people circulation that month. So the idea that Facebook has raised advertising costs for people is completely insane. If we spent a thousand dollars on Facebook ads right now, you'd reach millions of people with that amount of money. And you would be able to target your ads to specific people. Facebook's amazing for advertising. I mean, a lot of people get annoyed with ads that they see on Facebook. I love them. I have found some of the best things that I use on a daily basis through Facebook ads. I'm sure you guys use a lot of things that you also saw through Facebook ads. I love them. I get excited every time I see a new one. Because I'm like, man, what... What else did someone else come up with? What did someone else come up with today that's just going to save me so much time and make my life easier? That's what Facebook does by allowing you to target people based on their geographic location, their income, their interest on Facebook. It makes all of this easier where maybe you would have never seen those ads. Maybe the company would have had to spend 20 times more on advertising for you to ever see their logo or their name. Well, now you can pay... 10 cents a click. And you only pay if someone clicks sometimes. It's amazing. I just got an ad yesterday. I can't remember the name of the site, but I've been uh, Clip, Clipscribe. So we do these videos on Facebook. I mean, you guys see them all the time. It's a video, they've got text on it, text caption. It says the you know the point of the video at the top. And then at the bottom, it's a caption on what the person's saying. So we've been doing those for a few weeks. And those have helped us grow tremendously. We've gotten about 3,000 new followers just from the videos that we started posting two or three weeks ago. A couple of them you know get have, are like maybe over 200,000 views on the videos uh, and then all the other ones, 10, 20, 30,000 views on the videos. and we're able to find new people or new people are able to find us through doing that. Well anyway, those those text videos that you guys see all the time, those are not easy to make, or at least they didn't used to be. You used to have to put the video into your software and then you have to listen to the video and then you have to type out a caption at the bottom of it and you know make sure all the sizing was right on the video and the font and all the coloring and everything. Well, I just got an ad for a site yesterday that you just upload the video to it, it automatically puts the text captions at the bottom of it and allows you to put the title at the top of the video. It literally is going to save me three hours a day, probably. That's about what I spend every day uh, making our videos right now. And it's just through a Facebook ad. Someone paid a few cents to get that ad in front of my face. And it's going to completely change my productivity for the rest of the year if I would have never found that. That's the kind of thing that these Facebook ads do. And there's there's this underlying mentality that maybe you guys don't have it, but a lot of people do, that, but that advertising increases the cost of the products that you buy. Well, your your can of Coca-Cola wouldn't cost as much if they didn't spend $20 million on ads every year, right? No, that's wrong. That's completely wrong. Because you guys know, I mean, this is kind of a basic concept, the more units of something that you order and that you sell the lower the per unit cost is. So there's a point where you can continue running advertising and you keep selling more and more things and it keeps decreasing the actual per unit price of the item. That's a really big deal. Now sometimes there's a point where that stops and if you keep running ads past that point then it's actually an expense. But most of the time advertising makes your product cheaper. Just imagine if you're going to order T-shirts. Say you're selling T-shirts, something like that. Well, if you're selling T-shirts, you're—I mean, if you're selling a low amount of T-shirts, you're going to start start off paying about ten dollars per shirt for your unit cost. And if you sell a hundred of those shirts, okay, that's good. Sell them at twenty bucks. That way you can afford all of your other expenses on top of that. So you do a fifty percent markup on that. Well. Uh, sorry, 100% markup on that. And then you have a lot of other expenses come out of that. You know, maybe you paid the designer. You took a lot of time to make the designs. All kinds of those things. Your actual business that's selling the shirts. There are expenses involved in that. Well, if you're selling 100 shirts with no advertising, then your per unit cost is about $10. Now, what if you run some ads? And then you sell 1,000 shirts. Well, at that point, your per unit cost can go down to $5. And you can actually save a lot of money on your expense. You can actually afford to lower the price of your item at that point in time. Where maybe you were selling your shirts for 20 bucks and getting a $10 profit margin on them. Well, now you can sell your shirts for $15 and get a $10 profit margin on them. Advertising increases the amount of units that you sell. And the more units you sell, the cheaper those units are per unit. So this idea that advertising is some kind of an added cost, it just doesn't hold up. This thing going on with Facebook right now, this antitrust investigation, is absolutely nuts. And I don't care what you think about Facebook and their, maybe they're biased, maybe they censor content, whatever. We should not have the government getting involved in these private businesses whatsoever. You don't want that. Because someday you don't know who's going to be in control of that government. Meaning that you don't know who's going to be in control of the social media. So right now, you at least know that they're operating in a free market. And if they do a terrible job, more companies can pop up. Well, once it's not a free market anymore and they're regulating all the social media, that's not going to be good. Then you're not going to know who's in control of that. You're not going to know whether or not the content's real or not. Actually, if you're a conservative and there's a liberal person in office and they're controlling the content on social media... What are you going to think? Are you, do you think they're going to be making sure that conservative ideas are shared freely and fairly? No, probably not. You'd probably be crying about how the government shouldn't be in control of social media. So just don't let them fool you into doing this. <clears throat> this is from Bloomberg. So I saw this yesterday. One of my good friends from high school posted it. He's always had a thing against Nestle. Really they Think about their uh, bottled water. He's always had a thing against Nestle, and he shared this yesterday. It says, Nestle makes billions bottling water it pays nearly nothing for. Now, this is something, this is a prevailing idea that I see all over the place. I see things about price gouging all the time. I also see things about, uh, think about your IV bag at the hospital. I saw something, they are charging $500 for something that cost them 10 cents. Okay, well, I get it. Healthcare is overpriced. But you can't just look at the per unit price of an item, say it was 10 cents. That's not the only cost involved with an item. In this case with Nestle, they're talking about the water that they use. Well, they pull the water from a bunch of natural, I think this is up in, is it Michigan or Minnesota, somewhere up north where they're gathering this water. And I was looking, they pay like $500 a year for the water. And so people are saying, well, they have no, there's like no cost in their product, but they're making billions of dollars. Well, the obvious response to that is the water itself is not the only cost in that product. It's like if you opened a store where you were selling t shirts and you were selling a lot of shirts and you got them down to $5 per item and someone came into you and said, hey, you're selling me this shirt for $25 even though it don't this shirt only cost you $5? That's a really simplistic view of things, don't you think? What did the building cost? What did all the invest what did the design the uh, designers for the shirt cost? What did the employees that are selling the shirts cost? What's your monthly maintenance on electricity? All of those things. The actual unit cost might be nothing and you still have a really high cost. I've been guilty of this before too. When I was younger, I would go to a gas station. And let's say I needed to say I needed to fill up my tires with air. And you go over to the air pump at the gas station and it says $1.50. And in my mind, and I've actually said this out loud before, it's like I can't believe they're freaking charging me $1.50 for air. They don't even have to pay for the air. And they're charging me $1.50 for this. This is ridiculous. Well, this is that same concept. What I wasn't taking into account was what they had to pay for that machine that was pumping the air into my tires. That's something that people don't think about. They think about it as I'm buying air. You're not just buying air. You're buying a portion of a machine that has to sit on this property that pays property taxes, that has a motor inside of it that runs, that has to push air into your tires. You're paying for the machine, not the air. In the case of Nestle, you're paying for all of their factories. You're paying for all of their workers. You're paying for all of their plastic that they use. So I looked it up with Nestle. I wanted to know before I said anything, back to this friend. You know, the headline itself would have you believe that Nestle is making just a ridiculous profit margin, right? They pay nothing for the water, and here they are making ninety billion dollars a year off of bottles of water and candy and all that. So that would have you believe that their profit margin's just insane, right? It's got to be crazy. Well, no. I looked it up, and their profit margin is about the same as every other Fortune 500 company. Their profit margin's uh, right at ten percent. That's their net profit margin that they make. Now, they make about $90 billion a year, but then they have uh, about $80 billion in costs. So, And that's not all their CEO pay, by the way. Their CEO makes about $12 million a year. If you think about that just in what a portion of a billion $12 million is, it's almost nothing. And then consider the fact that they have $80 billion in expenses. That's not because they pay their administrators a lot of money. It's because they're investing in building new factories, because they have to maintain the factories they have right now. It's because they have thousands of employees. They have to pay shipping costs all over the place. They have to pay for all those trucks that are shipping things around. They have to pay for all the plastic that they get. They have to do all these things. And then at the end of the day, yes, they didn't pay much for the physical water itself, but it cost them a lot of money to get that water into the bottle and then get that bottle to the gas station. That cost them a lot of money. So you can't, you can't just have these simplistic views of what people are charging you for things. Your IV at a hospital, while yes, it is overpriced, can you imagine all of the expenses that go into that? First off, you've got the factory and all the laborers and everyone that made the IV. You've got the regulations and costs of the actual medication that's in the IV. You've got the cost of the hospital itself. You've got the cost of the shipping the IVs to the hospital. You've got all the people, the doctors, the nurses, and everyone that works in the hospital in the price of that IV. So it's not just the cost of the plastic that they're hanging on that little metal hook. It's not the only cost involved. There's tons of other costs involved. You go to a restaurant and they charge you a few bucks for a cheeseburger, and the burger itself only costs them 10 cents. Are you going to say that, well, this burger should have only been 11 cents? No, they've got tons of other expenses they have to pay for. You guys get the idea. So I wanted to talk to you guys about something. Manipulating statistics. So in college, some of the only classes that I liked were my statistics classes and the economics classes. Those were really the only ones that I found interesting other than all the music classes I was taking. And I always found statistics very interesting. And my professor loved taking time talking about how easily you could manipulate statistics and how important it is to make sure that you look at all the data sets and all the timelines and everything that they're using, all the sample sizes that they're using, before you take some kind of statistical data and formulate some kind of opinion off of it. I don't know what the guy's political affiliation was, but... He just thought it was really cool to make that point about statistics and I'm really glad that he did. Just look at a really simple just look at a really simple idea. You probably hear this all the time. Even if you don't really watch sports. So you could look at a football team. Just say the team's been losing games all year, an NFL team. They they play 16 games a year. Say they've just been losing games all year. And then towards the end of the year, they start winning some games, and then they, they only lose one more game for the rest of the year. So if you wanted to present the viewpoint that this team was really great right now, you could say something like, hey, they've won four of their last five games. Well, that's cherry picking a data set right there. You decided to take five games. Why did you take five games? Well, because they won four of those last five games. And if you wanted to make the point that they were hot right now, then you just want to take those five games. If you wanted to make the point that they sucked, you could say they've only won four of their last 16 games. Both of those things are true. But they're both formulated in a way to give you a certain feeling and a certain opinion about something. And people do this with statistics all the time. All the time. It's another random example, and I don't even have the real data for this, but if you looked at the number of people who have been killed by Muslim terrorists, you'll see people say there's only been 50 people killed by Muslim terrorists in the United States since 2002. Why do you think they chose 2002? Why didn't they choose 2001? Well, because that wouldn't have made the point that they want to. And my point in saying this is not that we need to worry about Muslim extremist terrorism. That's not that's not the point of what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, if someone makes wants to make the point that there is no danger from extremist terrorism, then they could just say, well, there's only been this many people killed by Muslim extremists since 2002. And then if someone wants to make the point that it is really dangerous, they could say, well there's been over 3,000 people killed by Muslim extremists since 2001. You would see it more obviously if they said, since September 12th of 2001, there's only been 50 people killed by Muslim terrorists. Then you would be like, (laughs) September 12th. Okay, well, obviously, why didn't you pick September 11th? That would be more obvious. But what people like to do is they'll pick a certain year to pull data from. You can hear things about our household family income. You can hear Bernie Sanders talking about the household family, the 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 income, the household income has is stagnant. It's remained flat over since the 70s, right? A lot of people will tell you this. Well, that's taken a whole household's income. There's something really important that you have to look into on that. And that's that in the 70s, on average, there are, you know, this is an average, so there are a little bit more than three people per household in the 70s. And now there's only, on average, two people in every household. So if the household income remained flat over that time, but the amount of people in the household decreased by 30%, then actually the household income rose by a pretty good amount during that time. But if you want to, you can just say that the household income has remained flat. And not mention the fact that there are a third less people in the household this year than there were from the 1970s data set that you're talking about. It's a really easy one. We did an episode on the war on poverty last week. I was tempted, by the way. This is what made me think about this again. I was tempted to to cherry pick a data set last week. I'll just be completely honest with you. If you're someone who's writing articles making memes, making content for podcasts and videos, things like that, I think you have a temptation when you're doing your research. And you have to try and remain as principled as you can all the time. When I first pulled the data from the War on Poverty, I could have easily said that since 1967 the poverty rate in 1967 was 10.5%. And now the poverty rate is 12.3%. It's gone up by almost 2% during that time. And we've spent about $24 trillion fighting poverty since that time. So given that data set, I can clearly tell you that our $24 trillion spent on the war on poverty all of this time over, this, over that whole data set since that year. Proof, case in point, that the war on poverty is a failure. Now, it is a failure, but for other reasons. But the problem is, I cherry-picked a number. I cherry-picked a year to pull data from. That actually would be the lowest poverty rate that we've ever had, would have been that year. That 10.5 number, whatever it is. So I could cherry-pick that, And I can go from there and say, look, poverty has gone up since this time, and we've spent this much money. When in all actuality, the war on poverty started in 1964. Not 1967, which was the date range I was giving you. Well, the war on poverty started in 1964, and at that time, the poverty rate was 17%. So actually, since the actual beginning of the war on poverty, the poverty rate has gone down. Now, one thing that these people can do is they can look at those, they can look at those, uh, you know, what I just said. The poverty rate went down kind of immediately after the war on poverty started, right? It dropped a lot from 17% down to, I don't know where it was, close to 11 something like that. But it dropped that much in the span of a few years. So then you could look at that and say, look, we've decreased the rate of poverty by this much since we started spending a bunch of money on poverty. Well, the problem there is you have to look at the years before the war on poverty was started. And in all actual, the actual case is that the rate of poverty was actually decreasing faster before the war on poverty started. It was already in a very steep downward direction the year that the war on poverty started. You would have had to do everything you could to stop the poverty rate from falling at that time, which I, I think we eventually did. So you could actually take those few years afterward and say, look, this is a success, which is, which is what they did. But then you can forget to look at the fact that it was already falling very sharply before the war on poverty started. It's something that people just don't look into. You can look at someone like Bernie Sanders saying, or uh, maybe, a, uh, maybe a poll comes out that says 52% of America supports Medicare for all. Look at this, a massive win for Bernie Sanders. Over half the country supports Medicare for all. I didn't really believe that when I saw it, so what I wanted to do was look into the actual poll itself. Well, the actual poll that they were citing, and you've probably heard people quote it a hundred times now, the actual poll that they were citing polled 2,000 Republicans and Democrats that were likely to vote. So what does that immediately tell you? Well, first off, like 40-something percent of the country identifies as independent or libertarian or something other than Republican or Democrat. Like almost 40 percent. So doing that statistic, they left out a major portion of the population. Almost half of the population was not accounted for in that poll. It was only between Republicans and Democrats. And there's a little bit more Democrats than there are Republicans, technically. There's like 40% Democrats and 35% – well, it's not that. But anyway, there's, there's more Democrats than Republicans between the two. So it's, uh, their, their poll that they used was very highly skewed in the direction of favoring that Medicare for all legislation. When actually if they would have put the independents and maybe even some libertarians in that poll – then it would have not been anywhere near that 50-something percent that they were representing. It would have been more in the 30s. But people don't really look into that. You can hear people talk about how many people die from gun violence every single year. What's in the what's the immediate thing after that? Well, like half of those or more are suicides. That's a, that's a really quick one right there. They can say this many people are di- or killed from gun violence every single year. And you look, if you excluded... The suicides, our rates are actually, they're getting a lot better. It's much safer than it was 20 years ago. I can tell you that. It's good. That's a good direction to move, right? How about income mobility? Sorry, guys. I just want to go through all that. just Just so you know, the reason I'm going through this is because you are just bombarded. You are bombarded with different claims every single day. You have all kinds of people coming to you and saying, uh, the 1% make more than the bottom 50%, or this many people are in poverty, or this many people support this kind of legislation. And it's really important to be, it's really important to scrutinize everything that you hear, regardless of who you hear it from, by the way. You should always scrutinize it. And especially when someone's telling you some kind of statistics, those are very easy to scrutinize. You can hear someone say that the income the income for the top bracket is capturing all the money, right? They're the ones that are capturing all of that money. It's getting distributed all to them, right? If you actually looked at that information, let's just say that the top bracket made a million dollars and their income increased by 10%. That's a $100,000 increase. Let's just say that the bottom bracket makes $20,000 a year. And their income increased by 10% as well. Well, that's an increase of $2,000 for them. Now, using that information, you could say that the top bracket captured 99% of the new income that was distributed, even though both income brackets increased by the same percentage. That's a way that you can easily take that and manipulate that to say whatever you want it to. When, in all actuality, since the year 2000, the income of the bottom fifth, the bottom bracket, has increased by 32%. And the income of the top bracket has increased by 15%. Actually, the bottom bracket's income is increasing at a faster rate than the top bracket's income is increasing. The problem is, the one in the top bracket's so much money, if you can just use it in money standards and not the percentage increase, then you can easily make the case that you want to. So there's all kinds of ways that people can manipulate you on a daily basis. Like I said, I was tempted last week to make something sound as bad as I could, right? I could have used that to to make the case that the war on poverty was a failure. I still would have been right as far as substance went, but then I would have been using some cherry-picked, some dishonest data sets to tell people that. So instead, I just used the whole data set and found all the different ways that I could come up with to prove That this was a failure. So just don't, you know, don't be tempted to be dishonest in the numbers that you're throwing out there, okay? One last thing that drives me insane, drives me completely insane, is talking about median wages. Median wages. That number, just, the median wage, and hopefully all of you guys know how to calculate a median. If you don't, it's the middle number. It's just the middle number. The easy way to think of it is to keep crossing out one from each outside. So you get a line of numbers, you just keep crossing out one on the outside until you get to the middle number, and that's the median. The problem with the median wage is that it really doesn't tell you about what people's incomes that are in the that are in the workforce, like what their incomes are doing. Cause if you could imagine just imagine this you had a imagine you had nine people and each one of those people were making the dollar figure that corresponded with their number. The number one was making one dollar a year. And number two is making two dollars a year and number three three. So imagine you have all these nine people and this is how much money they're making per year. Now the median wage in there is five. That's the median wage in your population distribution at that point in time. Now, here's the problem. If the person that's in the number nine, the highest position, if they create four new jobs that didn't exist, but all of those new jobs are all at the number one position, then your median wage actually drops from five to three. Then you can use that to tell people that real wages are going down, that people's wages are going down. When in all actuality, that's not the case at all. The people who were making money are still making the same amount of money, a bunch of new people who weren't making money just came in at the lower level. The problem is, the the more jobs you create at that lower level, the more drag it puts on the medium wage pulling towards the bottom. So you keep having this effect where more people are coming into the workforce, and when you come into a workforce, you're generally at a lower wage. You have more people coming into the workforce... And that has a a downward effect on the median wage, but it doesn't say anything about the income of people who are already in those income brackets. So you have to be careful with that. When you look at people in the 1%, you think, well, that's only only 1% of the people. That's what they're going to be making, and this is just terrible. No one else can get to that. Well, actually, when you follow people instead of just the brackets, you can see that Over a span of your lifetime, 12% of the people will be in the 1% at some point in time. That's 12% of the people will be in the 1% at some point in time. It's even crazier when you look at the top 5%. Those are evil people too, right? Well, over the course of your lifetime, 40% of America's population is going to be in the 5%. 40% will eventually be in the 5%. People don't think about the fact that when you follow people, when you say that only these people are making that much money, they're not taking into account whether or not those people are always the same people. And they're not always the same people. They're new people all the time. People fall out of the 1% all the time because they lose their businesses or they lose their jobs or whatever it is. They make bad investments. People fall out of it and new people move into it. So you actually have to be tracking what's called the income mobility or economic mobility instead of just looking at the amount of people that are in these different income brackets. That doesn't really tell you anything. And like I said, guys, the the whole point of all this, I don't know if this is boring to you, but like I said, it was like the only classes I liked in college. For some reason, all these numbers, I really like them. And I really like knowing whether or not someone has the ability to manipulate me at the time, especially if they're trying to use numbers to do it. I want to know what they're trying to tell me, what case are they trying to make. And you can normally look and see whether or not they cherry pick some kind of a data set to make that case because you can make a point. You can make a statistical point for almost anything that you want to make a statistical point for. You can find some kind of data set and you can pick the right years and the right people and you can use it to make any argument that you want to. And that's what these people do all the time. It's one of the things that's always driven me insane about Bernie Sanders. That's why I've been picking on him for so long. That's why we have a website called BernieLies.com. When he throws out some of these numbers, I'll write a whole article about how much he's lying to you. It's literally BernieLies.com. Now we've got a website called LizLies.com because she obviously does the same thing. So it's important to know whether or not these people are manipulating you because that's what they're doing to the people. That's what they're doing to people in our society on a daily basis who don't take the extra few seconds or don't listen to a podcast like this one today, who don't take the extra half an hour, an hour to learn about why maybe that statistic is wrong. Maybe that statistic has been cherry picked from a certain data set. What are they trying to get me to think? There are people who just don't go into that. They just hear a statistic, and then they formulate the opinion based on that statistic, and then that's it. It's golden. Might as well be scribed on a stone somewhere after that. So what we have to do is we have to pinpoint the fact that we're pretty good. I think libertarians are pretty good at listening to these statistics and calling them out when they're false. And I want to find a way to help other people do this, too. That's what my statistic class did for me when I was in college, when I didn't even know that I cared about this stuff at all. It really opened my mind up to all of those kinds of things. So just when you see someone throwing out a statistic, maybe look into it. Maybe look into how they pulled that. And then when you see the person that posted that statistic, maybe counter with, you know, why'd you pick that date range? What if you picked this date range? And what if you looked at this also? Do you see how the statistic just doesn't tell you everything? Should I really formulate my whole life's opinions off of that statistic right there? No, you probably shouldn't. So that's it for today, guys. Charlie is going to be back on Friday. i got one more day by myself. If you guys have any topics, you can always email me at nate at goodmorningliberty.us. Follow us on Instagram. We love that all you guys are doing that. It's at Liberty. On Twitter, at Good AM Liberty, Facebook, GoodMorningLiberty. Go to GoodMorningLiberty.us if you guys want to read some great articles on politics and economics. And winter is almost here. Go get yourself a nice Taxation is Theft hoodie. It's so nice and so soft. And you're going to be able to put your political opinion out there in just the most non-confrontational way. And that is a beautiful hoodie that says Taxation is Theft on the front of it. So go ahead and grab one of those on our merch store. It is gmlconnect.com, gmlconnect.com, and you can use the promo code podcast to get 20% off of that hoodie. If you guys do all that stuff. Leave us a rating and review on the podcast. We would really appreciate it. Do all those things, and I will be here again tomorrow, doing it for you again So Until then, have a good day and a good morning. Liberty.